The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're continuing to discuss the first season of Star Trek Prodigy and the latest episode called First Contact. And I'm Dom Bettinelli. Joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I want to uh, tell you to be sure to follow The Secrets of Star Trek in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest Media YouTube channel, where you should be sure to get notifications as well. I also want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that you'll be sure to enjoy called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where Jimmy and I talk about uh, mysteries, both natural and supernatural, from the faith and reason perspectives. In uh, our latest episode, uh, we talked about the Hindenburg disaster and what really happened there. And uh, mm-hmm. we have some awesome stuff coming up as well. So uh, definitely check it out, including some UFO stuff, which is some of my favorite stuff. So uh, check it out. Find it wherever you find fine podcasts or at sqpn.com slash mysterious. But today we're talking about first contact. I say contact because it's uh, the, the name is hyphenated. It's it's, it's, it's first contact, but the, it's a it's going to involve a con, a confidence trick. Yes. So uh, but so, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what goes on in this episode? Last time, the kids saw a fragment of a hollow recording in which Captain Chakotay, the previous captain of the Protostar, was in some kind of emergency situation. This time, while Janeway is alone, she reviews the footage and sees that the Protostar was being boarded by hostile forces that included the Diviner's robot pal, Dreadnought, as you could guess. <laughs> but she doesn't know who Dreadnought is, so she doesn't realize what the audience does. Meanwhile, the ship receives a distress signal that turns out to be from a Ferengi named Diamond Nandy. Nandy is a clothes-wearing, profit-earning female Ferengi. Oh, and she happened to have raised Dal as her foster son before she sold him to work in the Chimerium mines. However, he doesn't know that she did this, he, and he thinks he was just kidnapped. Nandy cons the kids into helping her con an alien race that has super special unobtainium crystals that she wants. But when they make first contact with this race, it turns out that the aliens need the crystals, and when Nandy steals some, it hurts them. Eventually, Dal and the kids get the crystals back to the aliens. Dal also learns that Nandy sold him into slavery, meaning that his foster mother betrayed him like Gwen's father betrayed her, so now they both have parental issues, including with their newest foster mother, Janeway, who sharply scolds them for blowing a first contact. Finally, Nandy gets word that the Diviner is offering a reward for information about the Protostar, and her lobes start tingling with opportunity, so she's going to betray Dal yet again. Dum-dum-dum. The end. (laughs) So we have a, yet another uh, introduction of a of a favored species from Star Trek's of, of the past. And uh, we've talked before about how Prodigy is probably a way to introduce Star Trek to a, to a, the, a new generation. Oh, no, it is. Yeah. It's not probably. It yeah, is. I, I should be more definite about that. Yes, it's, it's most definitely a way. And so by bringing in the Ferengi, it introduces this 
this character class that we, you know, especially in D- uh, Deep Space Nine, got to know very well. And uh, I guess the character class, what was it? Not D&D uh, species that we got to know very well. And it's a uh, so it's kind of interesting. They introduce a lot of these concepts of the, the rules of acquisition and Ferengi are not to be trusted and that sort of thing. So we, we uh, and we get that in this character, but they make the character female instead of male, which is I thought was an interesting choice. Um, yeah, but she's otherwise a normal female. Now, this is clearly set after Deep Space Nine because it was at the end of that that the grant that Grand Negasek amended the uh, Bill of Opportunities so that females could wear clothing and earn profit, and she is a clothing wearing female earning profiteer. Right. And just as duplicitous as many others we've met. <laughs> That's right. Um, and she's apparently operating alone. She's got that ship to herself. No, no well, she, she also has a robot. Uh, it's a little flying box that she has named Pickpox, which mm-hmm. is obviously taken from Pickpocket. Um, right. And unlike Dal, according to her, Pickpox has an eye for profit. Um, and so he's willing to, he's amoral like she is. He's willing to do whatever to earn profit. Right. And then another aspect of Star Trek lore that gets introduced here is that the prime directive, which is a key aspect. And this comes up, they illustrate why the prime directive is so important, even though Janeway, hollow Janeway has warned them from the beginning, like the first contact, you should not be engaging this lightly. You know, you shouldn't be trying to Damon Nandy tries to tell them that, oh, we're just going to like exchange this worthless junk for one of their crystals. Yeah. So Nandy says that she's wrecked out racked up gambling debts and needs one of these crystals to pay them off. Although we're never sure if that's true. Mm -hmm. She does need the crystal for some reason. I mean, whether she just wants it to be richer or or not, we don't know, but she does say she needs it. And she's got a, um, a cloaking device on board her ship, which is called the damsel, but the cloaking device doesn't work because she does. It's powered by chimerium, the first type of unobtainium we learned about in this series. And so they have a bunch of chimerium on the protostar. And so the deal is she'll, since the cloaking device is useless to her, she'll give them the cloaking device if they help her, make an exchange to get the crystal that she needs. And what she's planning on offering them is basically a Ferengi cuspidor, only it's not shaped like a cuspidor. It's just a flat pan. And Dal refers to it as a Ferengi spit pan. <laughs> um, so I find it interesting that their cuspidors are spit pans or are <laughs> pan shaped. Right. Um, it's like a serving tray is what it looks like. And... Um, so that's kind of the the general shape of the deal. I I do uh, Janeway. It struck me as remarkably scoldy. Yeah, in this episode, and she's super serious. And I don't know if part of it. I think part of it may be that she is unsettled by the fact that she now knows that she was on a previous mission on the Protostar that failed. Right. And I think they're based on some dialogue from Dal in his captain's log. I think that she's having a hard time assimilating that. And that may be why she's so negative in this episode. Right. And uh, she kind of has always assumed that they were her cadet crew. 
But now she has evidence that there was a crew led by Chakotay, who the Hollow Janeway would know, you know, have mm-hmm. that connection to, and that something has happened to that crew. And uh, yeah, it's unsettling her. And as a she was she was part of it because she can see herself in the recording saying, telling Chakotay, send the warning. Yes. Right. And we're being boarded. Right. And uh, so the the our protostar crew want the. Uh, cloaking device because they're still afraid of the diviner finding them. And so a cloaking device would help them hide from the diviner. And that's one of the reasons why they want it. And uh, it's a, a Klingon cloaking device that, uh, that, and, and eventually uh, Nandy tricks them by, because she beams all of the Chimerium over from their ship and, and installs it on hers. Yeah. So now she can cloak and she's got the unobtained, the second type two unobtainium crystal. Uh, which they beam back because the kids have now discovered the transporters. And at the beginning of the episode, we see the kids having fun with the transporters and they've got like a piece of pie uh, out of a replicator. It's still hot and they're beaming it around the ship and chasing it in a kind of game of tag. And we get a nice Simpsons reference at one point where (laughs) there's an episode of the Simpsons where Bart has like laid a piece of pie on the floor with a, with a a trap noose around it. And Homer uh, is walking up and he says, "Mm, floor pie and, (laughs) and takes the pie and gets himself snagged by the trap. So he's like hanging upside down, eating the pie. But, (laughs) but Jankum Pog in this is they're running up to the piece of pie says, "Mm, floor pie. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I love that they do a Simpsons reference. (laughs) Yeah. They, they then have fun. Okay. So they decide they need a living subject with the transporters. Mm -hmm. This is all while Janeway is brooding about the recording she's watching. Yeah. But they, decide they need a a living subject so they decide based on what we saw last episode where murph the glowing purple iridescent slug ate proton grenades and survived it's like well murph is indestructible let's put him through the transporter (laughs) so they do and they beam him outside of the ship and we get this shot of murph smiling, happily sliding down the outside window. <laughs> yes. Murph is apparently indestructible. So <laughs> I can't wait to find out more about Murph. That Murph, I, I have a, like, I think we've talked about before. Yeah. Murph, there's more to Murph than meets the eye here. So this, this is going to be something fun there. Um, so Janeway doesn't want them to violate the prime directive. And Dal doesn't really want to do the crystal stealing or trading job either. Because he knows Nandy and he knows she's not really trustworthy here. Right, right. But the others are insist that they want that cloaking device and they, yeah, they no... want to meet the aliens there. That's what they're really enthused about is we get right. to meet these aliens. And they don't know anything about Ferengi, so they don't know to not trust. They ha- they aren't like Harry Kim, who learned all about Ferengi at Starfleet Academy yeah. <laughs> when he offends the Ferengi. Um yeah. And it's been established that Ferengi are telepathy resistant, so Zero can't just read Nandy's mind. Right. That's true. Right. That That's a nice uh, plot <laughs> device there. Yeah. Um, by, by the way, I wanted to mention, so when Janeway's giving them this lecture about the Prime Directive, she actually calls it up on a, on a volumetric hollow display. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, they, it's in two parts. Uh, or at least what we see of it is in two parts. And I immediately took screen caps 
and now it's turned away from us so we can't so it's mirror imaged um making it hard to read so i immediately took screen caps and mirror imaged them back so i could read it uh-huh. and because this is the first time we've had the text of the prime directive on screen Mm. And part two of part one of it is fairly easy to read. Part two of it is not. Um, we see that more in the distance. But it turns out I did. It turns out that the text that they used for the prime directive is taken from the book Starfleet Federation, the first 150 years, which is sort of one of their prestige Star Trek tie-in collector's books. Mm-hmm. So they took text of the Prime Directive from that, and then now they've elevated it to on-screen status. So I'm going to read us what we see of the Prime Directive. It says, Section 1, Starfleet crew will obey the following with any civilization that has not achieved a commensurate level of technological and or societal development as described in Appendix 1. So that right there tells us there's an appendix where they go into detail about what the society has to be like. But it saves space here in getting at the principles. Mm. So you're not supposed to do any of the following unless the civilization has reached a certain level. A, no identification of self or mission. B, no interference with the social, cultural, or technological development of said planet. C, no reference to space, other worlds, or advanced civilizations. D, the exception to this is if said society has already been exposed to concept herein. However, in that instance, Section 2 applies. Section 2, if said species has achieved the commensurate level of technological and or societal development as described in Appendix 1, or has been exposed to the concepts listed in Section 1, no Starfleet crew person will engage with said society or species without first gathering extensive information on the specific traditions, laws, and culture of that species' civilization, Then Starfleet crew will obey the following. A, if engaged with diplomatic relations with said culture, will stay within the confines of culture's restrictions. B, no interference with the social development of said planet. And if you think about that, you can find that on Memory Alpha if you look up General Order order Number 1. But if you uh, if you go through that a piece at a time, you'll be able to if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll be able to think of different episodes where they invoked different clauses from that. And so this is actually a pretty good, well thought out summary Mm -hmm. of of what we've seen of the prime directive in different episodes over different series. We've uh, I think we've talked before about the morality of the prime directive and whether it's something has it ever occurred to you that the morality of the prime directive is indefensible? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's 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 interesting. Uh, it's an interesting debate that I think Star Trek fans have had from time immemorial uh, about the, the prime directive. But uh, in this case, they they ignore it. And uh, I, well, they're not trained in it. Right, right. They 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 and, they, it, and actually the kids actually try to honor it. Janeway is too harsh on them. It was Nandy. That caused the problems because when they get on the planet, the they find a way to communicate with the aliens who don't use normal speech. Mm-hmm. Um, they communicate in these harmonic vibrations, and they use that to restructure 
the matter around them. They, have, they live in like a big desert. And so they build this giant sandcastle for the kids to come in. And they've got these crystals hanging from vine-like things from the ceiling. And Andy just starts grabbing them and ripping them off. Mm. I, I like the design of the aliens. I thought there was some interesting, clever... Mm -hmm. You know, unique things about the aliens and their world and the way that they interact with it and their communication. I thought yeah. that was it was nice. They, they, they name the aliens. They decide to call the aliens the Samari after the word cymatic, which is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and they they're non-humanoid mostly um they look kind of like vorlons if you've ever seen babylon 5 where kosh and Olkesh finally come out of their shells mm. um and they're this sort of glowing translucent squid thing <laughs> it's 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 like that they look a lot like vorlons except they have faces yep um that look more human and also they look like kind of like brine shrimp and kind of like wasps hmm yeah yeah, but yeah, they they are uh, definitely uh, lateral laterally uh, symmetric, radially symmetric. Radially well, symmetric. actually, no. They, I mean, they incorporate. They probably are bilaterally symmetric um, mm. because when you see one from the side, it has this vespiform body, mm. um, wasp-like body, uh, and and but they also have these extensions that are, I guess, kind of like tentacles or mm. like the legs of a brine shrimp. But they're probably fundamentally bilateral rather than radial. Okay, and and as you mentioned, they communicate via harmonics, which is where Gwyn comes in because she's their communications expert. She knows languages; she doesn't know their language, of course. But um, she kind of figures out how to communicate with them. Um, it's a very scary moment where they have to, you know, the, it feels like they're being attacked, but they have to kind of uh, uh, go with it and. Um, how do they overcome the attack? They link, bit? They, she she sets her trans. So they're up on the surface at first, mm -hmm. and there's this sand blowing around them, and it forms this sand dome over them that they feel like is attacking them, and it's all in motion. And uh, Gwyn realizes it's some form of harmonic communication, so she sets her tricorder to match the harmony and tells everybody else to get their tricorders to match the harmony too. And once everybody's on the same wavelength, literally <laughs> the, uh, the communication, the, the um, s seeming attack stops okay. because they've established communication sort of, but it's still very primitive. It's like primitive communication. It's like meeting um, a tribe whose language you don't know and uh, and they're doing they start to do this form of barter mm. with them because they want the crystal. And so they, you know, gift giving is a human universal when you want to curry favorable relations with somebody you've just met, especially if you don't know their language. But even if you do know their language, it's a good idea to give them a gift. So they have the Ferengi spit pan, which <laughs> Nandy says, even though they won't know her language, she says, I present you with precious metal from the stars. Right. Because this race has never met. They're said to be advanced and they're not technologically advanced, but they seem to, we're told they're culturally advanced. Um, I guess. Yeah. And, but they've never met it. And uh, we can get back to that. Yep. Um, but uh, they accept the Ferengi spit pan. And so Nandy is like, and now you want to give me a gift in return. And so they do. They start singing a song with a light show. 
They start <laughs> having the crystals vibrate and light up and stuff like that. But um, but Nandy is not happy with a song and a light show. So she starts ripping the crystals off the little dangly things, and which immediately hurts the aliens. Right. And they we, we, we are told they can't sacrifice even one. And it, which is very implausible. Right. Right. It's interesting. Nandy knows about these crystals. So somebody has been to this planet and has encountered them before. I thought about that because Nandy a, a lot of, well, I mean, for a few seconds about that. Um, Nandy says that there's this race and they're advanced and they've never met people from another planet and they have these crystals. And I'm going, how do you know all that if they've never been contacted? <laughs> right. um, and I, I finally decided, well, this is the 24th century. They've got super amazing scanners. So I should probably infer that they did orbital observation, that Nandy herself has done orbital or someone she's paid has has for the information has done orbital observation where they scanned the planet. They found these aliens. They found that they have an advanced culture. They found no evidence of off world contact and they found that they have these crystals. It still is kind of, mm. you know, jangly, but, um, but I, I, given what they've done with scanners and given that it would actually be a smart idea to scan the scan the fool out of any place before you set foot there. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it I, I can live with the degree of knowledge she has of them. So uh, there's there's a bit of the Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark plot problem here, which uh -huh. is uh, and I and maybe I'm wrong, but for me, I see what did she need the the protostar crew for at all yeah, in this they, at, yes. they play no role in this at all they're bystanders yeah and and then they subvert her plan so she yeah. would have been better off doing this by herself right yeah okay so it wasn't just me i i was as, as you know watching it i'm like why did she need them at all like she doesn't the, need them well the reason is she wants their she wants their cimerium or whatever mm -hmm. it's called so she can power up her her um Cloak. Her cloaking device. Yeah. Um, and so she wants that's why she she involves them in this trade is so she can get close enough to them and get them to lower their shields so they can transport back and forth between the protostar and the damsel. Mm -hmm. And um, and she can take their take their cimerium or okay. chimerium. Right. But right, OK, so at least there's a reason why she's got them. Yeah. After that, she doesn't need them, but she probably I mean, for the she doesn't need them in one sense, but she probably needs to keep them along, partly in case she encounters extra dangers and needs help down on the planet mm -hmm. and part which she kind of does. I mean, mm -hmm. she may not have escaped if it was just her. Right. Um, and also because if she suddenly calls the deal off with them, they may get suspicious about what's happened, what, what's just happened here, what she just done. Right. And I suppose she might not have even got past the first step because it was Gwyn who figured out how to communicate and, uh, yeah. Nandy didn't seem to be able to. Yeah. Um, so when Nandy steals the crystals, the others think Dal was in on it. They naturally turn to him and go, well, she's your friend, your foster mother or whatever. And so you must be you must have lied to us about the nature of the deal. And so there's that kids TV version of the 
you know, the the turn, the twist and the misunderstanding in, in the plot that one of the characters has to then, you know, recover from. It's a- they they undo that pretty quickly, though, because Dow leads the charge in 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 grabbing Nandy. He also is the first one to grab one of the stolen crystals and plug it back into the system. Right. That's right. And uh, and then you mentioned that how Nandy reveals that she which it kind of saw coming from the first time we saw her. <laughs> She's the one who sold Dow into slavery. Uh, uh, and that she stole the Camarium, so it's a double betrayal of Dal, the who you know who's learning to. The only people he really can trust and rely on are the people who make up his crew, and sort of the their bond is growing. But he does have this betrayal again that he has to deal with. By the way, cymatics, uh, if I recall correctly, is um, deals with. Uh, like the harmony between different frequencies. Mm -hmm. And so that would help explain why they decide to give him that name. Cymatics is a subset of modal vibrational phenomena. The term was coined by Hans Jenny, a Swiss follower of the philosophical school known as Anthropocy. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So you, as you mentioned, Jamie does the scolding bit where she says they did irreparable harm to the aliens. Uh, She's too harsh here. Yeah. They, they, I mean, look, she should, she kind of approved their mission after she gave them a lecture on the, on, on the prime directive. She said, follow these principles. And the kids did their best to do that. It was Nandy who disrupted things. Right. The kids then tried to repair it all. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can, like you said, maybe we can chalk it up to Jimmy just being uh, distracted uh, by the other, by the Chakotay thing. Um, Gwyn tells us that the, uh, the true, the, the real friend, uh, the real lesson of the friends we made along the way, <laughs> or, or in this case, Gwyn tells Dal. for you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he learned uh, out of all this, he learned who his true friends are, which is the, the protostar crew. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, Nandy fi- uh, finds out that she can sell information about the protostar to the diviner and thus uh, gives him a location for where they are. Although if he doesn't have a protostar drive, I'm not sure how he's going to get there so quick, but yeah, we may, we may end up just kind of skipping over that bit. Presumably he got on the protostar the first time through some kind of sneak attack or maybe when they were repairing something, because otherwise the protostar can get away from him easy. But he's also going to cross, what was it, what did we say, 4,000 light years of uh, space pretty darn quick to get to them. So um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, And that's that's where the episode ended. Um, Mm -hmm. So any other notes on this one? No, I think it was, oh, well, one thing. um, So Nandy quotes the rules of acquisition three times. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if we were getting our first new rules of acquisition on screen because they've never filled in all 285 of them. Right. And, um, and, but I looked them up and it's like, nope, all three of the ones she quotes, we already knew. Okay. There is a book, the the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition. Yes, that Iris Stephen Burr wrote, and unfortunately, it does not. There's two editions of it. There's a pocket edition with just the rules, and then there's an expanded edition that has lessons about and mm-hmm. legends about the rules and how they are applied. And they, they were written by Iris Stephen Burr, who was the producer of Deep Space Nine, and I was the one who came up with the rules of acquisition. Maybe, mm-hmm. but he certainly expanded them, and um. Unfortunately, these are human editions, and yeah. so they only contain the rules of acquisition that humans have been cleared to know about. I see. So uh, canonical only because they don't tell us all of them. I see. They do tell <laughs> us a few that don't make it on screen. Oh, OK. OK. 
Um, awesome. Very good. So as we wrap things up, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Justin W., Tommy C., Patricia M., Laura F., and Benjamin B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. We'd love to know what you think of, of this Prodigy episode, First Contact. Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next week when we'll be discussing the next new episode of Prodigy. And until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and remember the 285th rule of acquisition, no good deed ever goes unpunished. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest, and remember, mmm, floor pie. <laughs>